Hi, this is Anthony Parent of IRS Medic. I'm on vacation today in Vermont, but this is such an important episode. Uh, we have an incredible guest, Marcus, Mark Zell, who's uh, been a real uh, incredible, uh, helpful tool in our mission to bring justice to the U.S. tax system. Um, and today we're going to be talking about a potential lawsuit that uh, we want to bring against uh, U.S. Treasury, our potential lawsuits. And to help us with that is John Richardson. He's going to help us sort of raise the issues and, and sort of bringing up some of the, the cases that we may be, be able to bring and maybe find those plaintiffs necessary in order to um, bring some justice here. So, John, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to hand it over to you. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks very much, Anthony. And I looks to me like you're enjoying your vacation in Vermont. I'm sure Vermont is a much better place with your presence. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Keith, for joining us. And certainly thanks very much, Mark, for taking time out today to chat with us about this. By way of background, just sort of elaborating uh, on what Anthony has started with. Uh, as we all know, life as a U.S. citizen abroad is, uh, is definitely challenging. And there are a number of aspects of it, depending on who people are. Certainly immigrants, people who try to move permanently from the United States have difficulties. Certainly the accidental Americans have plenty of difficulties. All of these things are rooted in really one thing, uh, and that is the fact that the United States defines tax residency in terms of citizenship. That is citizenship-based taxation, which is something that follows anybody who's a United States citizen uh, all around the world. And there have been many attempts over the years to influence uh, legislatures to change the law. Uh, there's also been, I think, a certain lack of coherence in terms of exactly what needs to be changed. And uh, our view is that given that all the problems are the result of citizenship-based taxation, that the focus should be on getting rid of citizenship-based taxation, which brings us to the possibility of a lawsuit today. And we're gonna tap Mark Zell's expertise in bringing these kinds of lawsuits. Uh, he is acting for Monty Silver in the transition tax case. He's acting for the accidental Americans and the renunciation fee case. And we are at the point of, I think we're in the end part of the discussion of agreeing that a lawsuit against citizenship-based taxation is timely. So welcome, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, uh, John, thank you for, uh, for having me here. This is really exciting. Uh, Anthony, good to meet you and Keith. Um, this is a uh, this is an important, fundamentally important issue that we've got to address. Uh, and uh, it all, it's been, we've been working on it as you've indicated, John, and different, from different angles um, over the past uh, two or three years or more, and even back uh, as early as 2016 in the challenge to the FATCA legislation. But we've decided after um, a lot of discussion that one of the things that we need to do is just kind of just get around, not stop beating around the bush and deal with the primary issue. And that is the evils of citizenship-based taxation. The United States is one of maybe two or three countries on the planet that imposes income tax uh, liability 
based on citizenship alone. Every other country on the planet, including where, where I am here in Israel, uh, is uses a much more rational approach to this, which is, listen, you pay, your primary tax obligation is to the country in which you are permanently resident. And there, that country has all the rights and both legal and moral to, uh, to tax you uh, within the context of its laws in that jurisdiction. But simply putting the tax burden on people because they happen to be a citizen of one country or the other, as the United States does, is not, is no, is not fair. In our view, it's, it may well be unconstitutional. And uh, we can talk about, I can talk and give you a little bit of background about this. Uh, yeah, let, uh, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about that. But the, you know, as we've discussed before, the, the starting point of every discussion about citizenship-based taxation actually takes us back 100 years, 98 years now to 1924, with that right. case of Cook versus Tate. And, you know, uh, people who either don't want to think about the problem or who are supporters of citizenship-based taxation would say, well, Cook versus Tate has decided the issue. That's it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, in fact, I have uh, Cook versus Tate right in front of me on my laptop uh, as we're speaking. And uh, it's a very brief decision. And the question that the Supreme Court Justice McKenna at the time in 1924 addressed was, does the Congress have the power to impose uh, income tax obligations on uh, the basis of citizenship alone? And the court answered that power, that question in the affirmative saying, yes, Congress under the Constitution, Article One, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution has that power. But that is not the issue that we are going to be addressing in our proposed litigation. And we don't question the power of Congress to impose tax, taxation based on citizenship, but we are saying that the congressional power to tax based on citizenship is circumscribed, limited by other provisions of the Constitution, including so example, in particular. All right, mm -hmm. yeah, so, so for example, to keep this grounded in sort of visual things, uh, somebody may have the right to drive, no problem, but they don't have the right to drive at 100 miles per hour. In other words, there, there are limitations on, what, on things that people can legally do, correct? Yeah. Yeah, that is true. Uh, well, let me let me give you an example, uh, maybe even closer to home, John. I mean, the uh, the Constitution uh, uh, allows people to or protects the right to vote. Okay, uh, and and the right to vote, like other rights, or the right of free speech, or the right of uh, religious freedom, they're all they're all protected by the Constitution. But uh, the it, the Congress or state governments have the power to regulate those rights, okay, within, within reason. But if they regulate them in the wrong way, for example, if they deny the right to vote based on race or gender, or if they uh, restrict a person's free speech rights based on, well, um, a, a difference of opinion between the government 
and the citizen. These are things that the Constitution prohibits. So you, the Congress may have the power or the state governments may have the power to do certain things, but the Constitution, you can't, that's only part of the question that Cook versus Tate addressed in 1924. What it didn't address is the limitations on that power of taxation. And the world has changed dramatically. That's an understatement since 1924, particularly with respect to the world economy, uh, the presence of Americans abroad. In 1924, it was only a handful of Americans that uh, were living outside the territory of the United States. Today, we're talking about millions of people all over the globe. And we're talking about an economy that's globalized and not, and not uh, parochial. So, so all of those things have changed the entire context in which these issues arise. And now we see, particularly, and, and the other thing that's happened is that we now know how countries around the world are approaching this problem, okay? With the exception of the United States, North Korea and Eritrea, uh, every, every other country on this planet opposes ta income tax obligations based on residency. The United States has chosen not to do that. Now, we can't attack the policy. The case is not going to be attacking the policy of that decision to tax based on citizenship. We are going to attack or challenge the power of Congress to do so in light of equal protection, in light of due process, and other constitutional restraints. So in other words, Congress may have the right to impose citizenship taxation, but they can't do it in any way they see fit. That's right. They have the power. Yeah. I guess the power, they have the power to do so. There's no question about that. Cook versus Tate settled that conclusively. But Cook versus Tate didn't discuss the limitations on that power. And that is which, that is what our case, uh, once it's filed, uh, will be uh, addressing. Well, certainly if we go back a hundred years ago, you know, just to pick up on your context, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the, the tax code was all of 121 pages. Uh, there were no information <laughs> returns. There were no controlled foreign corporations. There were no PFIX. There were no foreign trusts. There were no throwback rules. There was no, I mean, you know, none of this stuff was even conceived at that time. And on the citizenship side, you know, if there basically there was no dual citizenship, or at least in a significant way, if people moved from the United States and became a citizen of other country, they lost U.S. citizenship anyway. So, you know, this is this needs to be rethought or considered in the context of a completely different system of taxation, both in the United States and internationally. Uh, and, uh, you know, a, a set of tax rules that, that nobody even could have conceived would have existed. So you talk about equal protection, and I think in, in people talk, that means that, uh, you know, people can't be discriminated against. It would include that, I suppose. Sure. Uh, equal protection is and it's something that's coming up now in the context of the U.S. elections, you know, that the, the rule of law and the, the, the application, the fair application of the law on an equal basis to all persons irrespective of their race or their particular political philosophy or whatever. So that's, that is a fundamental principle in our Constitution is protected uh, by the Fifth Amendment with the, against the uh, federal government and the 14th Amendment against the state governments. So 
that is something that, and let me give you, maybe I'll give you a little example how it applies in the tax context. Okay. Um, Something I think, even you, I think were surprised by this, John, if I don't, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the U.S. tax rules, it's not only the income tax that applies internet globally based on citizenship, it's also the estate and gift taxes. So, um, so I had a client, uh, have a client who lives here in Israel. She's a widow. She and her late husband had an account in, with a bank in the United States. Uh, it was a modest sum of money. Uh, but we, we represented all of her savings, all of the couple's savings. When he died, the account was held by the by them as husband and wife. So when he died, under the law of the state of New York or New Jersey, wherever it was, all of the the those uh, the assets in the bank account went automatically from her late husband to herself. Okay, uh, without any need for any kind of court probate or administration in the United States automatically. It's a very simple and inexpensive way to transfer wealth when a spouse dies. And so she asked the bank to transfer the money that she had in her account uh, to her here in Israel. And the bank refused, not only refused, but froze her account. So she was completely without any source of income other than social security. And by the way, they froze that too, because that was deposited, her social security payments were deposited into the same account. We fixed that problem. Okay. But the rest of the money that they had saved, they refused to transfer. And to this day, they refused to transfer. And why? They say that that the IRS has a lien on the automatic lien on the bank account because she, the now the sole owner of that account, resides a U.S. citizen residing outside the United States, and only because of that, had she lived in the United States, this wouldn't be a problem. She'd have her money by now for months ago, but only because she's a U.S. citizen residing outside the United States, the bank says it can't let the money go. The IRS says. You can't, the bank, if you let that money go to her, you'll be liable to us in the event there are any estate taxes. Let me just say there are no state taxes due because she's well below the $11 million uh, unified uh, state credit and gift tax credit. So, So there's no issue here except bureaucracy. And she can't get her money because of this IRS rule that applies only to U.S. citizens residing outside the United States. This is, in my view, a classic example of a violation of the equal protection principle, okay, that is a direct result of citizenship-based taxation and, and would be one of the ways in which one of the arguments that we will use in this case to attack the power of Congress that was affirmed in Cook versus Tate in 24, 1924, but we're going to say, no, no, equal protection is being violated here in the case of this client and thousands of others around the the United States and the world. Well, you're right. I was surprised by that. That's a shocking example. And, and I think, interestingly, that comes from a Treasury regulation. It's not written into the Internal Revenue Code, if I'm not mistaken. 
it's not it's not in the code per se, but it comes from this notion of this automatic lien that applies with respect yeah. to a state tax mess. And we're going to attack it on that basis too. That's not a constitutional argument in that in that particular case, but um, but the main problem is that it's it's totally discriminatory against U.S. expats and and others uh, U.S. citizens living abroad. Well, oh, Mark, as a general principle, uh, there are a number of ways that the, the Internal Revenue Code and the, and the regulations uh, discriminate against American citizens who try to live comparable lives outside the United States, you know, whether it's in retirement planning, small investing in general, carrying on business. Uh, you know, I mean, it goes on and on and on and on and on. And Interestingly, uh, Treasury has the statutory authority to change a lot of these things. And to date, they, they have simply refused to exercise that authority. So I think that, I mean, I think that we're definitely on the right track in, in, framing, in framing the issues in this way. So now I know that you're running a number of these. Uh, what do you see as next steps? What's needed to get this moving? Do you have any sense of timeline? How does how does it, how does the yeah. work? Well, in terms of the arguments, uh, the legal arguments, and the various angles of attack, I think we're in great shape. We could file tomorrow. What we're missing, John, are the are the people, the plaintiffs, who will actually be named in the case and will present their problems, their examples of this, of this uh, Im improper impact of citizenship-based based taxation on each of them. And they're going, each of them will have different types of problems. I mentioned the one with the uh, state tax and federal transfer certificate, but, but there are many others. And you, uh, John, are in, in as good position as I am to enumerate some of those kinds of problems that people are having. Uh, you know, we all know about FATCA. And uh, we, in, in fact, I've litigated FATCA cases, uh, both as a plaintiff, as a lawyer for since 2016. It's not an easy uh, uh, attack to make on FATCA because the courts in the United States have imposed very stringent limitations on the ability of individuals like you and me to, to raise those cases, to raise those challenges which are real under various various provisions of the Constitution. Rand, Senator Rand Paul and I were both plaintiffs in a case called Crawford back in 2016, where we raised all of these attacks on the FATCA legislation and were told by the federal courts that we didn't have constitutional standing to raise these because the problem wasn't really with the United States government, even the United States government and its legislation caused all this, it's because there were intervening actors, banks and financial institutions abroad were the ones who were actually putting the limitations on ordinary uh, US citizens and permanent residents abroad, looking, uh, trying to do their business, as you indicated, to open a bank account or get a mortgage or a car loan. They were being turned away and shut down by these foreign banks. And the court said, well, that's, that's a problem with the foreign banks, you know, even though the foreign banks were simply complying with the dictates of the FATCA law and the intergovernmental agreements that, that it required. So, so, that's, so we need to find plaintiffs. That's our main, our, our main task right now. We'll need 10, 15, 20 plaintiffs, each with different stories, each with different legal arguments, and but all with the common goal to bring down or to focus 
the attention on citizenship-based taxation. In other words, they, they need to tell their precise story of how citizenship taxation has impacted them. It's about their story. Right. Directly, uh, directly, directly, right. directly. Could you elaborate a little bit, not, not in a big way, uh, but I think this is worth it just because this is such a big problem on what are, what in a general sense are the requirements for standing? Yes, uh, the Supreme Court has said, by the way, th there's nothing in the constitution that actually talks about this. Uh, there's only article three of the constitution which deals with the uh, federal judiciary. And it simply says that there is there's going to be a judicial branch that's going to have jurisdiction to hear um, uh, cases or controversies that that arise under various federal laws or the Constitution itself. Cases or controversies. That's the that's the key phrase. And what the Supreme Court has devised right from the very beginning, and I think I must tell you, it's an appropriate an appropriate uh, limitation. It said that only persons who have a clear and concrete interest in a dispute may bring a may bring a suit in federal court, assuming all the other requirements are met. Uh, and they have created a doctrine of constitutional standing. What does that mean? There are basically three pillars to constitutional standing. The most important is that the person bringing the suit must have a, an actual injury that's caused by whatever it is the, um, that they're challenging in the way of federal legislation or, or federal action. And uh, in our case, the equal protection arguments and due process and so on about citizenship-based taxation. There must be an actual injury, not a theoretical one, not one that's uh, maybe suffered by somebody else, a third party, only they, the plaintiffs themselves, have been hurt in this way. So in the, to give, go back to the example that I gave about the federal state tax problem, uh, my client, she's been hurt. She's been directly affected by this Congression of IRS and Treasury regulation that, that that's causing or her not to be able to get access to her money. She's deprived of her property, okay, directly by this, as a result of her being a U.S. citizen residing abroad. So that's actual injury. The next pillar is causation. There has to be a causative connection between the injury complained of. In this case, I'll use the example of the money that she can't get out of her bank account with the challenged governmental action, in this case, citizenship-based taxation or the treasury regulation that imposes this lien and so on and so forth. Okay, so that's causation. That's the second pillar. And the third pillar is this. It's called redressability. That's a long word, but it basically means, okay, you want, let's say you've been hurt, you've hurt, been hurt by this federal action or this law or whatever, and it's been caused by, your injury's been caused by the federal law, so you've met the first two pillars. Now comes the question of the ability of the court to grant you relief that will solve your problem, okay? And that's called redressability. Can the court fix the problem or the injury you complained of? So those are the three components of standing under Article 3. It gets a little bit more involved in, in, in another area called prudential standing. I won't get into that right now. 
but but that's what we need to find is people who can who can satisfy all three pillars. So they need to be subject to citizenship-based taxation. They need to have experienced harm. And the result of the, the lawsuit itself would be that it would fix their problem, correct? Correct, correct. Okay. All right, now, one thing that comes to mind is a lot of people have renounced US citizenship over this issue. Can a former, would a former citizen have standing or would they, uh, automatically be excluded? Well, that's an interesting question. And I, it's one I haven't uh, been able to, I haven't really focused on. But just standing on one leg, I would say um, it depends. I mean, if, for example, they are still being held uh, to, their, after renunciation, they're still having tax liability, okay, that's resulting, well, let's take an example, again, we'll use my example of this woman, let's say she had renounced her citizenship, all right, uh, but the husband died before she renounced her citizenship, so she, so the, the IRS will say, well, listen, it's very nice that you renounced, but all of this happened, all the, the death in your family of your husband happened before you renounced. Therefore, we're going to st stick this lien on you. You're going to have to get this federal transfer certificate. So in that situation, yes, I think she would have standing, even though she's no longer a U.S. citizen, uh, to attack this. There's also, as you know, John, and you're much more uh, conversant with this area than I am, and that is this whole area of the expatriation tax. Okay, uh, you know, you have people who who uh, want to renounce or maybe even have renounced, but they have paid money uh, to the U.S. Uh, Treasury based on, in order to, in order to renounce their citizenship, uh, the exit tax or expatriation tax, uh, because they have a net worth over whatever it is, two and a half million dollars or whatever the law calls for. And they said, listen, you took this from me. It was unconstitutional. You, this, this law applied uh, as you applied it, which I, compl I complied with, has caused me to lose thousands, millions of dollars, which I've paid to you, and I want that money back. Now, it's, you know, so Mark, could be, it seems to me as we yeah. through the, the issue of appropriate plaintiffs, I, I think that uh, somebody who renounced and had to pay the exit tax ought to be very seriously considered. Um, I, I, I agree with you. Oh, yeah. I, I'm open to, I'm open to the, the whole gamut of potential uh, plaintiffs, okay? And whether they're renounced or not. We need as many different angles of attack on this outrageous system of taxation uh, that we can find. We and and uh, stories, and we need them from all walks of life, all incomes, et cetera. Now, let me ask you this, and I, I think I know the answer, but um, what if somebody doesn't file a tax return because they can't afford to file a tax return. Well, they too can can uh, join our suit. Now, there, there that's going to be a, a, a question that they're going to ask is, well, if I join this suit and I, I tell agree, them I my agree. story. I don't think they're likely to do so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, but, but I don't think yeah, they're likely, well, but, it, but it's an interesting well, mention of the problem. I can't, go into, I can't go into any real details now, but I'm telling you there are people like that that are, that are so outraged by this uh, invasion of their... Uh, on, on their property rights and their privacy rights and everything that goes along with this, uh, that they would be prepared to even come out of the closet and, and join a lawsuit. I can tell you that that's the case well, without well, going into details. Well, uh, you know, if I just want to jump in, because I never quite understood the equal protection argument as well as I do today. 
as you described it, I get it. Because we have this situation where we have U.S. Treasury saying, you know, income is income. We could tax you no matter where it is. But on the other hand, they say, you know what? All income isn't the same. We can tax some income totally different. I mean, totally different. And this magical thing of going foreign. But well, we live in a global world, but we don't. Right. Because that's the, the, they get both sides of it. They get to say we need these special rules because it's a global world, but we get to tax you because it's a global world. Well, which one is it? You're picking and choosing. And here's here's some really and this is what I would say. This is what I would think about for plaintiffs. You want an equal protection claim. Well, why does somebody have to file a 5471? Why does someone have a 965? All of these things, no domestic filer has to deal with. So I would say anyone would have an equal protection claim. It's like, look, I can prove my tax return costs a lot more to prepare than a domestic one. I could prepare, I could show my tax liability is totally different. I could show you the vast difference of treatment um, between being in the U.S. and being outside the U.S. And not only that, as we get into the other issues too, that I would sort of say, um, we have a massive, 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 completely different. And I mean, night and day different between taxation and what's the purpose. Now, the other point and what the previous, the previous, uh, we've had a couple episodes on this, on going through some of the foundations of our individual income tax. One of the episodes we talked about before is that the, the code actually never defines what an individual is. It never does. It says it's an individual income tax that applies to married people, single people, people who are widowed, and people who are divorced, and people who are heads of households. But it tells us nothing else about where they are. And as, as John indicated, when this law was passed in 1954, the understanding that individual meant U.S. resident. And it's been a whole history of cases, other cases, defining what individual means, but they're not tax cases. So the fact is, individual has never been defined. And that's a significant thing. And in its absence, we have the IRS saying, OK, well, individual has never been defined. So the way we're going to the, the way we're going to define this is in the most discriminatory manner possible. The absolutely most night and day difference between someone in the U.S. and someone overseas. Someone overseas has to file a return that's going to cost two thousand dollars to show they owe nothing in taxes, whereas someone could owe I don't know anything and they have a very simple tax return to file. What's the difference? Why do we have? such a massively different compliance wording when I thought we lived in a global world. And that's the whole justification for taxing everything. Well, everything's moving around. We got to tax it everywhere. Well, if it's so easy moving around, why are we treating it differently? And that's really a significant thing. Now, the other thing I would add into here is let's take a look at the FBAR 2 in this, because I think we want to get some FBAR plaintiffs because in the, the episodes, the last two episodes we've doing, we've proven we have proven beyond a fact there is no legal justification for an FBAR. The FBAR justification, 5314, is not that. It's a just, it, it is a law that requires, if you are a foreign agent, if there's a foreign agent, which has to be a person, it's defined in the code. It's not a foreign institution, which is defined in code as a foreign bank. That's not what it requires. This is, if you have a foreign, if you are, uh, doing business for a U.S. person with a foreign agent who is a person. Now, that foreign agent may have a relationship with a bank, but without a foreign agent, there is no FBAR requirement. And somehow, Treasury has gotten away with this. They have expanded it beyond what the statute requires. And you look at the regulation, it says, the form that the 5314 prescribes 
prescribes is TDF, so about 90.22-1. In no way, shape, or form does 5314 describe the F-bar a million miles away. And not only that, as we pointed out, the F-bar itself is in an effort to reduce the burden of filing. We're going to pass this law. So the purpose of 5314 was to make international agency transactions easier what Treasury did is like, oh, actually, what this means is that if you have a bank account, we could ruin you because you didn't file a piece of paper indicating you weren't doing anything wrong. So I would say that's another. I think that's another big one. I love it. Could, I love it. Totally out to lunch. I mean, they are so far beyond anything there. And that I don't even think you need a, an EPA. You know, I don't even think you need the modern Supreme Court to rule in our favor. I think anybody would say, look, here's your law. And your regulation has zero to do with it other than it's foreign. That's the only thing in common with the law. Okay, uh, 5314 mentions something foreign. And the FBAR is something foreign. That's all they have in common. That's, that's it. There's nothing else. So it's a wild, wild misapprehension of law. And this is also what I would say. The IRS has bragged about the $10 billion of, of, of offshore penalties it intimidated people into getting. The fact is the, F, the IRS never had the right, the authority to impose those penalties in a scare into poor people into the offshore disclosure program. So in my opinion, anyone who has paid $10 billion, part of that $10 billion in an offshore fee it should be a plaintiff because the IRS had no right to threaten them with it. And the IRS still has no right to impose FBAR penalties, which they are still doing. And the other, and I would say this as the equal protection claim, John and I talked about this, Keith and I talked about this, who is the IRS hitting with FBAR penalties? The elderly and people at the end of their life, people who cannot fight back. I know that from my own vast history of cases. We've done a lot of opt-outs. We've seen how the IRS works. If you're elderly and have dementia, guess what they're going to do? They're going to come after you hard. If you're younger and can fight back, oh, we look at your age, um, uh, we don't think you were acting all that willful. But magically, when you're older and can't fight back like many of your clients, right? You're, you don't have the resources. You're not thinking about this. Oh, man, that's where they love. They love to beat up on you. Just like the IRS loves to beat up on people who don't make any money. Earned income tax credits, right? This totally different thing. But just showing the point, the IRS beats up on people who they can. And they'll, they'll use you to get their stats up. Even if they never collect the money, they don't care. That's all this is about, getting their stats up for what? For what? Well, we're doing our job. We're really terrorizing Americans. Aren't we great? Give us a raise. That's where they are. They are acting so incredibly illegally. Now, it would be one thing if you're acting illegally in a way that sort of benefits Americans. Oh, we got to fudge the law to make this work. But they're acting illegally in a way that is so utterly destructive, utterly destructive with no purpose. There's no purpose except to ruin people. And we know the IRS is acting in bad faith when they're opposing these penalties. We know it. Wait a second. Why are you opposing penalties on someone who died? The IRS imposed non-willful. We got lucky with one of my clients after she died and she disclosed this count, um, I think mistakenly now. I wouldn't, wouldn't have done it now, knowing what I've known now. I'm like, you're better off getting caught because the IRS is harder with the people who say, oh, I did something wrong than the people it catches. So it's all messed up all over the way. So those are the things that I would think, you know, when we're ta talking about plaintiffs and if someone's watching this, I wonder if I'd be a plaintiff. Well, let's really think about everything that's going on. And you sound like 
hey, look, we want a lot of issues, what you're saying, Mark, right? You're like, hey, that's right. I'm saying it. And I want to tell you, first of all, uh, Anthony, on your FBAR point, it's very interesting. I have a, a case that I'm familiar with in which the, uh, the uh, taxpayer was a U.S. citizen uh, who had uh, an account in Israel. He was actually, he, he was living in the United States. He was actually a government employee. He had an account in Israel that, that uh, he had before he came to the United States. Didn't really think about it. He was a Holocaust survivor. Okay. And uh, the IRS, he made voluntary disclosure under the program that you mentioned. And the IRS destroyed, took away his entire pension, all of his savings, all, all so that he would become compliant. I mean, there, there are horror stories about this. So I'm fully with you, Anthony, about expanding the scope of this lawsuit to include all of this. And I want to say something else with your permission, uh, John and Anthony, and that is, of course, we want the lawsuit to succeed and get a court order striking down citizenship-based based taxation if we can. That would be a great, uh, great uh, achievement, the ultimate achievement, in fact. But before we can get that, before the courts are likely to give us that relief, the, con the country, the public in the United States, and, and by the public, I'm referring to Congress itself, that represents that public, needs to be aware of what's going on here. And most of the people in the Congress from both parties simply don't, either don't know, it's a lot of them that just simply don't know, and as you know, and, and many, who do know, don't care, okay? So part of our objective in, in bringing in this litigation, as wide as we can get it, with as many powerful examples, and Anthony, I invite you to join our team because you are a, a very powerful spokesman. The, as much as we can do to bring citizenship-based uh, taxation into focus and before the public so they understand the egregious harms that are being caused, particularly at a time when the Congress is poised to add 87,000 more IRS auditors. And nobody has even said, I've tweeted a couple of times, I'm sure you guys have, you know, these guys are going to be used against us expats. Okay. Nobody talks about that. They're, they're, yes, they're going to be used against middle-class Americans and working, working class Americans at, at home. But think of what's going to mean for us. The nine million abroad, where they haven't had the the kind of manpower that they that they would want in order to bring our lives into uh, in, into more misery. All right. So so and that's and this is a, a real issue now. I mean, the IRS is now being looked at uh, in 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 the context of its power and it's it, it, these overreaches that you described, both by the Treasury in terms of its regular rulemaking and in terms of its enforcement uh, uh, actions. I mean, we're about to enter a whole new dimension of IRS intervention, involvement in our private lives. And, you know, we didn't talk so far at the, on this podcast about the privacy rights that are being destroyed wholesale, okay, by FATCON, by FBAR, and so on. So there's a lot of things that we need to we need to. I, you know what? I might, you know, one of, the, one of the topics in my hopper is the Privacy Act of 1978. And I've been looking at that. I haven't got too much of it, but my first indication is it does seem to, and because Treasury regulations incorporate the Privacy Act of 1978. 
So when you look at those treasury regulations incorporating the Privacy Act of 1978, you're like, well, how are you guys doing this FBAR thing then? Because the, because the yeah. privacy says you just can't, the Privacy Act of 1978 says, treasury, you can't just send a broadcast filing obligation. When you're sending an obligation, it has to be notice directed to the person. If you're going to require an FBAR, if such a thing exists, according to my quick understanding of the, of the and I, this is what I'd love to go over you a little bit more, according to my quick understanding of it, it's like, you can't do that. Or if you want to do that, you have to give every year, you have to send a notice to someone who's a, hey, so-and-so, I heard you have a foreign bank account. You, so-and-so, have to file, send this form and send it back to us. It just can't be something, go to a website or go to the second page of your Schedule B and there's your notice. Because actually, and this is my point for my, 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 our previous thing. If you look, if you think schedule B is your notice, then I say you have a perfect defense because follow schedule B, follow it back. Oh, it sends you to the FBAR form. Okay. Where's the FBAR form send you? Oh, it sends you to the treasury regulations. Where's the treasury regulation send you? Oh, it sends you to the law. What does the law tell you? Oh, you don't have to file a foreign bank account report. It doesn't exist. It's a foreign agency report. So wouldn't you think that well, I read the law and the law called for something totally different. Wouldn't that be reasonable cause about I didn't comply with your law because the law actually says I don't have to do this. That seems reasonable cause. So everybody who never filed an FBAR, whether willfully or not, it doesn't matter because the law is not that. Isn't the, let's say, because here's the point. Let's say that Treasury can magically create any regulation from any law. Let's say that's that, that is what it is. But wouldn't the fact that the law is missing be reasonable cause to say, hey, look, I, I didn't get your regulation because I don't see it. You got to give me a break. And like, fine, this is your new law. But shouldn't you notice me that actually, hey, look, ignore 5314. We know it says that. Ignore it. But you have to pay attention to our law. This is a law. That is what's required to me, at least, if you're going to do with this whole separate regulatory sort of um, uh, our regulatory masters, right? If they want to do this, shouldn't you at least say, you know what? You didn't even give us a fair chance because your law says the opposite of what you want. Okay, so Anthony, I wanted to just say, I, I, I mean, this is a, a fascinating issue and I really want to dig into it uh, with you. Uh, and But I want to just say something, the uh, way the Treasury looks at the the restrictions put on its rulemaking powers by federal law. That, by the way, John, you mentioned the Monty Silver suit. I mean, that's what that case is all about, the, 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 which we're going to be arguing in October in front of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And, the, and that case is all about the, the steadfast refusal of the IRS and the Treasury to abide by the limitations put on rulemaking by something called the Regulatory Reform Flexibility Act of 1980. Okay, and and the IRS, the position that they took for years is that, well, this doesn't apply to us, even though the law says it applies to all federal agencies. And even the, 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 the Government Account Accountability Office ruled that the, the Treasury was violating this law by, by simply ignoring it. This is the attitude that they take. It's very arrogant. It's categorical. It's completely at odds with the, the their statutory authority. And now they're going to be getting another eighty-seven thousand people to make people's uh, to, to enforce their view of what their the, the law is 
under their regulations and so on. This is part of what we need to be incorporating into our suit and to the extent that it relates to citizenship-based taxation. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's citizenship John. taxation that extends the jurisdiction outside the United States. But to kind of uh, you know wrap some of this up a little bit here, uh, you know, great discussion. But some themes that come out of this are uh, number one, Mark, as you point out, I think it's critical for everybody to see this as far more than a lawsuit. What it is, it's a lawsuit, sure, but it is every bit as much, if not more a massive educational campaign to teach Absolutely. Congress, et cetera, about the original sin, which is citizenship taxation. Second right. thing that I think comes out of this, you know, particularly Anthony's discussion here is that, and this came up in the discussion of the, the Build Back Better Act, but do you realize that it's only Americans abroad who are required to report their local bank accounts to the IRS? But they, they want to include similar provisions. The, 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 the advocates of this new legislation want to impose similar obligations on American stateside. And I think that that is another way for us as part of the education campaign that you've mentioned, John, to get our message across to the ordinary uh, uh, taxpayer around the, throughout the United States that they understand that it's not just an expat problem. They're using the, the tools that they have adopted for expats, and now they're applying them at home to yeah, infringe sure. upon privacy rights and everything else. Or right. Another way, all resident Americans need do to understand their future is to see how Americans abroad are being treated by the IRS. Precisely. And Precisely. I think the third thing that, you know, coming out of, coming out of this, uh, particularly uh, Anthony's contribution here, which is very important is that frankly, I think that when we think about plaintiffs for this, I think that we ought to consider people who are in the OVDI, OVD programs. Because, I have no objection to that. No yeah, objection. I mean, these are good players because it was the very fact of citizenship taxation that resulted in the confiscation of their assets, pensions, etc. Yeah. Okay. Look, we're going to have issues about statutes of limitation and all this other. There are, going to, there are a lot of defenses that will be thrown in our way. But that shouldn't be uh, a reason not, not to proceed. Things, to not raise things. So right. therefore, I need, to, I need to tap into my forums to help secure plaintiffs for this lawsuit. Right. Okay, so that'd be great. I, I think that the basic message that needs to go out is this, that number one, citizenship taxation is the issue. Everything else, although a big problem, is really the result of it. I think that, you know, that's number one. Number two, if you have been harmed Okay, if you have been harmed, now that's different from not liking it. Okay, if you can demonstrate harm in any way, shape, or form, then please consider being a potential plaintiff. You know, at least that's right. If you're required, if you're required to pay a tax, if you've paid a tax that is unlawful, you want to recover. If you know, whatever. I mean, all of those if things are real. A form penalty. Okay, you know, all Correct. things like that. Correct. In other words. Do not reflexively rule yourself out, all right, because we are looking for plaintiffs from all walks of life and all income levels who have one thing in common. They can demonstrate harm, which has resulted from the U.S. practice 
of imposing tax residency based only on citizenship and nothing else. So I think that's basically so, what we're looking for, correct? Would so Mark write? and John, Mark and John, do you have something that you have written up that I can use aside from this podcast and that gives the criteria the type of plaintiffs you're looking for? So we that do. way I can get it out in black and white. We do, Keith. We have something short. Uh, it's it's preliminary. It can, and I think we need to revise it to include some of the the excellent points that have been raised during this podcast by by uh, John Anthony. and by Anthony. So so let's okay. let's get we'll get that to you so that you can send that out to your uh, to your constituents. All right. Well, as we drive in today, Mark, I want to I want to thank you for all the fantastic work that you've done on behalf of Americans abroad in different ways, whether it's those who are proud Americans, Monty Silva, or accidental Americans who are just sort of caught up in this, et cetera. You know, you you have done and continue to do fantastic work for which all people affected by citizenship taxation should understand and thank you. Uh, do you have well, I thank you, and it's my, it's my honor, John. I, I, it, I, this is a, an injustice that must be rectified. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that's probably the perfect message and point in our discussion today, and we'll certainly come back to it. So, Anthony, thank you for the IRS Medic podcast. Keith, you bet. And I just and, and what I'll do is – yeah, and what I'll do is I'll put everyone's contact information in the description. So if you're watching this and you're just like, yeah, look, I want to see if I'm a prospective plaintiff, you can reach out to any four of us, whoever you're you're comfortable with. Uh, um, just reach out to us to say, hey, look, and then we'll sort of just, you know, we'll 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 chat and discuss and uh, try to get this going. Yeah, we need any any I think anyone injured by this discrimination, and that really is you know anyone who's filed a 965 transition tax. That's something, right? Anybody sure. who's doing anything for it, really, it's all different, right? Or if you if you've had simply the like you said, Anthony, this is what we we're talking about in the silver case. Your compliance costs have been escalated because you've got to go through nine sixty five and uh, these other kinds of uh, esoteric rules that are inscrutable and uh, unfathomable. So we need uh, people that have had to pay more to their tax advisors or accountants or lawyers. You know, they're also injured by this. Absolutely. Fantastic. The basic point is that Americans abroad are actually being subjected to a far more discriminatory and punitive system of taxation than resident Americans. I mean, that's the base point on this. We are the canary in the mine. So, okay, for, for the rest of the, the American population. And these 87,000 auditors are going to be uh, on our doorsteps in, in no time. We've got to stand up now, all of us, all Americans, both abroad and at home. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, everybody. And I'm sure we will pick up on this again. Thank you so much.